The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by MiPhoto, who has just introduced their latest generation of tripod, the MiPhoto Air. They're lighter, smaller, more stable, and more colorful than ever. Find out more about this and other great designs by visiting MiPhoto.com and use the code THECANDIDFRAME to get 15% off MiPhoto purchases. That's MiPhoto, spelled M-E-F-O-T-O.com. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I enjoy talking to photographers about their personal projects. As much as I may love their editorial or commercial work, it's often their personal work that provides the greatest insight into who they are and what they're passionate about. One of the lessons that can be taken away from these photographers is why it's often a good move to choose a subject matter that you have a passion about. Ewan Forrester combined his photography with his interest in off-road biking when he documented the creation of a mountain bike trail near Vancouver. It was a project that offered an interesting challenge for the photographer, which went far beyond just creating the images, but eventually displaying weather-resistant prints along the newly created trail when it was completed. It's an interesting story about how to find and create interesting work with subject matter that is very close to home. All right, Ewan, well, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure pleasure to have you. Well, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, thanks for reaching out. I was really uh, intrigued by this project that you were working on, The Evidence of Trail Theories. And you, you can describe it to us in, uh, in, in a minute, but tell us a little bit about your, your background because you're not a professional photographer. You, you're a game designer. Yeah, that's right. I, I spent about a decade as a game programmer. Yeah. And then now I kind of, I work more in like internet security as, as a programmer. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I've, I've been photographing, I guess, kind of semi-seriously for about 10 years, but yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not a professional. So what, what sort of spoke to you in terms of photography? Because, you know, you're sitting in front of a computer a lot, a lot of the time for the kind of work that you were doing. What was the appeal of photography to you as compared to what you were doing for a living? I actually think that it was kind of similar to making video games in a way, like kind of using technical things to say something that's, you know, mushy and not clear. And, and I don't know, I don't want to use the word artistic, but like that, that kind of thing. I, I, yeah, telling stories, conveying experiences. I think that's all really similar to video games. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I think that's why. So did you just start dabbling? How did you sort of start getting into picking up the camera and, and making photographs? I, it actually started when I hurt myself snowboarding. Like I, I'd been taking pictures like on trips or whatever before that. And I kind of enjoyed it, but didn't really think very much of it. Um, but uh, then one year on my birthday, I managed to uh, wreck my knee snowboarding. And so I was laid up on the couch for about six months. And so I was kind of, I was trying to figure out a way to turn a negative into a positive. 
And I kind of looked over at my little camera and I was like, oh, maybe I should try getting into that. And so I went and bought a big camera and started going to like camera club meetings and whatever as a way to get back outside again. And uh, it, it just kind of snowballed. You know, when I look at your website, I see that you, you seem to have, to have a, a real affinity for telling stories with your photographs. It's not just about the, the, the singular photograph. Tell, tell me about this sort of fascination with sort of telling a, a narrative with your camera. <laughs> I, I think it actually came from like an Internet post that I saw once where it said that what separates good photographers from bad is that they can string pictures together and, and make them and make them be a cohesive whole. And I was like, well, I want to be a good photographer. And so I, and I looked at my pictures and I was like, oh, these don't string together well at all. And so I kind of like took up that challenge, I guess. When you looked at your pictures, what did you find that they were lacking? Because you can take a lot of pictures of a similar subject matter, but they don't necessarily play well together. Mm -hmm. And as you just said, you know, a good photographer should be able to to do that. So what was the skill that you needed to develop to be able to be able to do just that? I guess I don't know. It's it's tough to put a finger on. I think just for me, I guess it was finding a subject matter that that I could return to over and over again and that kind of had that depth. So at the beginning, I know I really liked mountain biking. And so I took a lot of pictures of mountain biking, but they were just pretty pictures and they didn't they didn't hang together. So after after a while, that kind of I don't know, I, I never got especially good at it, but I still got it still became a bit old, I guess. Whereas when I I started photographing um, electronic music parties that my that my friends put on and that that subject matter, I thought, had a lot of depth because I was able to dig into the behind the scenes part of it and like what goes on. To, to make these parties happen. Why, why do these people do it? That, that kind of thing. I thought that was a lot more interesting. I, I really like reading like accounts of behind the scenes things. Mm-hmm. And so, so the idea of, of getting to create a behind the scenes account um, really was, yeah, super appealing to me. Okay. So those are the images that are, are called soundproof on your side, right? That's right. Okay. So, so tell me how, what that, the process of, you know, taking pictures of that experience uh, of, of your friends taught you uh, in terms of being able to do, do a story. What were some of the skills that you feel that you developed that helped you with the project that we we're about to talk about? I think it's the, the kind of the stamina to um, approach a project over a long period of time and dig into it and to become bored with the pictures that you take and push yourself to dig deeper and take other pictures. I think that's the primary one. And then a secondary one, I think, is to try to dig into the emotions that people feel rather than the facts of what they're doing. And that, that I think, kind of goes hand in hand because you can only photograph the facts so many times. Mm-hmm. But, but the emotions that people feel, it's, it's much, at least for me, it's much harder to take a picture that really represents that. You know, they come to the surface less often and they come to the surface in a photographic way less often. And so kind of being ready to capture that and be sensitive enough to capture that, that's a real challenge for me. And that's that's what I've tried to work on. Well, that's an interesting comment about moving past what's in front of the camera and sort of just documenting and trying to capture feeling. Yeah, with my second project, which is about medieval recreation, um, the uh, that, that was like a complete... That, that, that was a complete area that I knew nothing about and I wanted to try to understand it and then convey it as best I could. But the criticism that I heard about that was that it was just facts. And I guess because I was so overwhelmed with trying to understand the facts that I wasn't able to really dig into the emotions very well. And so for this, this, this project about trail building, I, I think I understood the facts at least a little bit better. 
and I really tried to concentrate on on uh, on digging into the feelings instead. So why don't you tell us about the the Trail Fairies project, how that came about, and uh, and, and for people who have not seen the photographs, can you explain what what the project was? Yeah. So so for nine months, I followed two trail builders as they built a new trail um, in Vancouver, Canada, and um, after that was done, I made large weatherproof prints of 20 of the pictures and put them up along the trail itself so that people could see how it was built as um, as they were using it. And tell us about how the whole idea came up with it. You said you were your bike rider yourself. How did you find out about the fact that these two people were going to be working on this extensive project for almost a year? And you know, how did you sort of find your way to, to actually document it? Um, so I knew them um, through a mountain bike club that we all volunteered at as guides. Like trail building is often kind of secretive. And, you know, as, as you're beginning a project, you don't want people to, to know about it so they don't come and try to find it and kind of tromp through the woods and wreck everything. Um, so it can, tends to be a bit secretive at the beginning. Um, but because we had these mutual friends, I kind of heard through the grapevine a bit that they were going to be um, they were going to be doing this. And so I approached them and asked if I could follow. And the, the reason that I wanted to do this was that I had wanted to take I had wanted to do a project about mountain biking for a long time, but I could never figure out a way to do it that wasn't just making pretty pictures of people riding bikes. And I'd kind of brainstormed and brainstormed different aspects of mountain biking that I thought would be a bit different, but still a way to talk about that subject matter. And trail building was one of the things that I'd kind of thought about. I heard in another interview that you said you were about, you felt uh, a little nervous about approaching these two people, even though you knew them. <laughs> Tell me about that. What was that about? Uh, I guess, I mean, you always feel nervous. Like, it's it's a weird thing to ask someone, like, can I follow you through the woods for nine months? <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, it's it's kind of I don't know, it's putting yourself out there. And I didn't I didn't know what they were going to say and I really wanted to do it. So, yeah, I I don't know. I just felt nervous cuz I didn't know what what they were what the outcome was going to be. You know, how, how did how did your perspective about what you were going to be taking on sort of change from that sort of initial foray into asking them, "Hey, can I follow you around?" to actually being out there because nine months is a long, it's a long period of time to be dedicated to photographing anything. Mm -hmm. But tell us about how that, how what you expected compared to what you actually faced going out there uh, on a regular basis to photograph them doing their work. I think that I underestimated how repetitive the work was going to be. That, that was a major challenge for me is that they're, they're doing the same thing, the same like five tasks or whatever over and over and over again. And um, it's just two people alone in the woods doing this and trying to make visual variety out of that, I think, was really hard. And that was something that I really underestimated. And as well, I think that the pace of the work um, really surprised me. They worked much harder than I thought they were going to. Um, they worked harder than they thought they were going to. They finished the trail in half the time that they had allotted. And so at the beginning, I tried to really kind of pace myself and not go out super often, just try to be there for the bigger moments because if I tried to be there every time that I would just burn myself out. Um, but because they f- they were finishing so much more quickly than, than we anticipated, then I had to start really pushing myself to be out there all the time, all the time, not even getting to review my pictures or anything, just always out there. And that really did burn me out. And the quality of my work really, um, really took a nosedive during that time because I wasn't able to reflect or anything on what I'd done. I didn't know what I needed to do next. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, and I was really tired. <laughs> so yeah, my, that, I, I worked the hardest during that end part and I, I accomplished the least. Well, really, that's interesting. For people who, who may not hit the trails on a bike or even on foot, 
Can you give us a description of what these people were were doing? What was the work involved in doing it? Because some people might think a trail is just like moving away brush, but it's pretty extensive, right. especially since you know the intent is for both hikers and cyclists to be on these on these paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing they had to do was to choose where it was going to go, and so that that involved picking terrain that wasn't too steep. And as well, terrain where the right sorts of materials would be available, like um, the right kind of dirt to make the finished trail bed, the right amount of, of rocks to kind of fill in holes and whatever. And so once the, uh, once the, the rough line had been chosen, then there's, in, in this area anyway, I think, I think the way dirt is is different in different parts of the world. But it, in this area, there's like an or, a layer of organic soil, like dead plants and whatever, that needed to be stripped away first. And then underneath that is kind of this more clay or sand-like dirt that's a bit, that's harder. And so they would dig down to that, and then the, the train would undulate um, a fair bit. And so they would fill in the undulations with um, walls of rock, and then they would cover the whole thing in, um, in another layer of that kind of sandy clay-like dirt, and then pack it down. And so how often were, you, were they out there, and how often were you out there photographing them? So they were out there two to three weekdays per week and one to two days on the weekends. Um, on weekdays, they were out for like three to four hours a day and the weekends for, um, between eight and 11 hours per day. And their longest day was 14 hours. I was out there a total of 35 times during the project, um, mostly on weekends, um, but uh, a number of, of weekdays as well. So um, I definitely wasn't out there as, as much as they were, but they were out there a lot. <laughs> So you had mentioned before that you started recognizing that a lot of the stuff that they were doing was very repetitive. Mm-hmm. So when you started going out there and you started realizing that, what were some of the choices that you had to start making to make sure that you had not just a variety of images, but a, a variety of images that when they came together on in the form of these prints or uh, on the web that they told a, a, a story? Because, you know, you're out there for a long time and like you said, you know, you can make the same images over and over again. How are you sort of pushing yourself to really think about, you know, filling in all the all all the gaps in terms of the story that you were trying to tell? I tried to pay attention to what they were feeling as as they were working. We talked. We spent a lot of time talking, and at home, I went and I took notes about what um, what I heard them say about what they were feeling. And so I made this this list this list of like 25, 25 feelings or themes that I wanted to try to hit on. And then before I would go out shooting, I would kind of glance through that list and and be like, oh, pride, for example. Oh, I don't really have any pictures yet that represent pride. Okay, I'm going to try to think about that and try to think about how I could represent pride today. And then I would head out. You know, there must have been moments where they were frustrated because sometimes I can see from some of the photographs that they were working out in the rain, you know, mm-hmm. and just a variety of things that you, they couldn't possibly anticipate and all of a sudden they have to sort of contend with. Mm-hmm. Um, what were those experiences that they had and what were the, your own experiences in terms of feeling like frustrated or, or stuck during that, that, that whole process? Yeah, they, they felt frustrated from time to time. I think what really helped them was uh, the amount of community support that slowly formed around them. So they, you know, they know other trail builders and 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 whatever, and and slowly people started to uh, to volunteer their own time to kind of help come out and and keep them company and uh, and to put in work, and and I think that was really helpful for them. Um, in in particular, there was a couple, Alex and Maddie, who uh, stumbled on the trail when they were out uh, walking their dog, and they left a note. Um, saying how awesome they thought the trail was, and they left some beer, 
and they they ended up um, meeting meeting Martin and Penny, the, the two trailbuilders, and uh, and they became friends and they worked together quite a bit. And so I think that kind of sense of community really helped them through. For myself, I guess it was their company because I don't know if I ever felt frustrated, but I certainly felt down on myself that I wasn't, you know, towards the end when there was a lot of work, but I wasn't accomplishing anything. I definitely felt down on myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I that would kind of start to melt away a little bit when I would be out there in the forest with them, just trying to think visually that 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 experience of just kind of getting lost taking pictures helped helped a little bit but yeah i would come home and i would you know feel sad again and i just kind of had to pick myself up and keep going really <laughs> well, what was that sort of sadness um about for you what was uh, you know what was the the block that you were that you were feeling in the midst of that cuz you you know you can go through these phases especially when you're involved in something for a long period of time mm-hmm. can you can you speak more to what what those feelings were about well I think that it's kind of similar to something that you that you've talked about in the past, where you've talked about your fears about um, about making photos or making books or doing this podcast. You know, maybe it's not going to be very good. Maybe people won't like it. But you've talked about in particular about how these fears manifested as feelings that you needed permission to do these things. Mm-hmm. So, like, I can't do this podcast because I don't have a degree in podcasting or or whatever, right? And I found that for me, those kind of feelings manifested in needing permission to continue. So in particular, like I would talk to my friends about this project and I'd be like, yeah, I'm still out shooting or yeah, I'm I'm still editing or yeah, I'm still working on those captions. And my friends would get kind of bored about hearing this. (laughs) And (laughs) so I would feel like I didn't have their permission to continue. And and sort of semi semi similarly, um, my poor girlfriend, um, she kind of felt like this project was the mistress in our relationship. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> and so I, you know, I definitely when I heard that, I definitely felt like I didn't have her permission to continue. And sometimes in the evenings, I would just procrastinate, and I would work on things that were easier that I didn't have to that, that I knew I could do. Like I'd just go and and edit some photo from a trip or something that mm-hmm. didn't matter. And so what I learned from you is that all of these things were really just my fears manifest. These, these needs for permission were my fears manifesting in kind of a weird way. It's it, because it's the case that I don't need my friend's permission to do this. And of course, they were really happy for me when it came out. They were supportive. They're good friends. And with my girlfriend, like, of course, I had her permission to do it. But I just needed to learn how to balance my time better and how to incorporate her more into the project. And then, you know, your, your words helped me see the procrastination for what it really was. So I don't think I have um, a lot of insight about getting over that fear specifically, mm-hmm. although I want to talk about the fear more later. But, but your words really helped me take control of my feelings and, and understand them. And when I understood them, I was able to control them a little bit better. And so that, that really helped me out a lot. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm glad I could be of help. <laughs> when, when you started making these pictures, when did you start realizing that, you know, that you just you wanted to do more than just photograph it? When did you start having this idea for how you wanted to, to share the photographs? <laughs> well, that idea came from you as well. So in episode 142, it's called In Conversation 2. Yeah. Not only do you talk about this fear thing, which made obviously a huge impact on me, but also at the end of it, you're interviewed by Martin Taylor. And, um, and he asks you at the end, who is your one photographer be that you would recommend and why? And you said Zoe Strauss. And yeah. you, 
you said her because she did this project in Philadelphia where she photographed this neighborhood for 10 years. And every year she put up a gallery outside underneath a highway overpass. And it's called Under I-95. And so every year she'd put up this gallery so that people in the neighborhood could see the pictures that she had been taking of them. And that idea really stuck with me. And it, I kind of just like, filed, the whole episode stuck with me. And, I, and I, uh, I filed it away in my, kind of in my subconscious. So one night when I was out with the trail builders, um, we, were at the, we were at the pub hanging out. And, and they're always just bursting with ideas about this project, about their, about their trail and their, their project. And in particular, they had kept really detailed notes of um, the number of hours that they had worked, the number of feet of trail they'd built per day, of who helped them, of how long that person worked, et cetera, et cetera. And they, one of them suddenly had the idea that they could put up markers along the trail to show how far they got every month. So like you'd be riding or walking along the trail and then suddenly you'd see this marker and, and, you'd see, and, and it would say like month one. And then you'd go a little bit further and then you would see month two. And you'd kind of think like, oh, that took me two minutes to ride, but it took them a month to build. And then this idea from Zoe Strauss just suddenly uh, jumped into my head and I blurted out, oh, and I can put up pictures by those markers. And eventually they, the trail builders kind of felt like putting up those, those markers would be a bit too kind of self-aggrandizing. They're, they're pretty humble people kind of despite what I did to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this idea of putting up photos along the trail just kind of stuck and took on a life of its own. And tell us about, you know, creating these prints and, and the logistics in terms of getting getting them up there, securing them, protecting them from, you know, from the environment. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing with the prints was figuring out how big they were going to be. I was pretty worried that if I tried to figure that out in my apartment, that I would just get the wrong answer because being in your apartment is just a different kind of scale than being in the forest. Um, so I, I took, I went and bought a bunch of different sized pieces of white paper and made some different sized photographic prints and just like hauled them out to the forest and we held them up and we we're like, Oh, it's this one. No, that one doesn't really work. Oh, how about this one? Um, and then eventually picked something. And then the, the second part was figuring out the materials because here, here in Vancouver, it rains a lot. And so the, the pictures needed to be waterproof. And as well, I, I figured that they needed to be UV resistant because um, oftentimes there's like a beam of sunlight that comes through the trees and I was worried that it would like hit part of the picture and then just kind of like slowly move its way across part of it and, and cause the colors to shift on only a portion of it, which would look really ugly. Um, so I called around quite a bit and eventually found a place that kind of specializes in outdoor printing. And um, so they printed the stuff on this um, plastic material called Sintra and it's waterproof with UV resistant ink and it's laminated. And the prints really withstood the, the weather very well. Uh, I, was, I was quite impressed. But the trick with working with them was that they're kind of used to corporate clients and printing things like logos and rather than printing like higher fidelity stuff like photographs. And so the first prints from them came back um, really kind of lacking in contrast and um, with the blacks really kind of choked up for some reason. And so working with them was a little bit tricky. I ended up making, spending like a month making like reference prints of this is how I want it to look. And I'd get these prints, and I'd bring them home and I'd turn off all the lights because it was going to be really dark in the forest. So I'd look, look at the pictures, prints like in the dark and be like, okay, I think this, you know, this is about what it should look like. You know, this face needs to be brighter or whatever. And then I brought those reference prints into them. And, uh, and from there, they were able to make things look really good. And tell, to tell me about securing them in, 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 in the forest, because I know that theft and, and was, was a concern. Yes. 
So around here, in, in particular, in the last few months, there's been a number of signs that have been stolen or, or have been defaced. And so I was definitely worried about that. So I, I, I did a number of things to try to reduce the chances of that happening. And I have no idea if any of them were successful or not. Um, it could easily be that all the sign stealing people were like on vacation or whatever. While they were out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but they, they ended up not being stolen or defaced. And I did a bunch of things. And so I don't know if they worked. But in particular... Um, I started by writing an article about them in a, in a mountain bike for a mountain bike website. And I wanted to try to set the tone and, and, uh, and explain who I was and why I was doing it because I was worried that if these things just kind of appeared in the middle of nowhere, that people might, um, you know, not, might not know who I was or question my motivations or maybe assume the worst and that, and that might kind of set things off on the wrong foot. So I started by writing an article, um, the next thing I did was I made it clear um, at the site that the installation was temporary. And that, that was some advice that I got from the local mountain bike association, and it was excellent advice. That's something I easily would have looked, overlooked, um, making it clear that it was going to be temporary. But I think that helped. I tried to make the prints look good. Uh, I spent quite a bit of money on them. And uh, I, I really, I, I feel like if I'd spent half the money that they would have been maybe four, four times more likely to, uh, to, be, um, to be defaced or something because people wouldn't have valued them as much, I think. In the subject matter, I tried, I wanted to kind of touch on some potentially controversial topics, but I was, I tried to be really careful about the language I used so that if somebody read, read what I had to say about those topics and had a different point of view, that they wouldn't be offended. So I spent a lot of time kind of sanding off the rough edges um, when I was talking about those topics. Can you give me an example of what one of those topics was? Yeah. So around this kind of community, the idea of there being secrets in the forest is kind of maybe offensive to some people. They, they feel like, oh, this is public land. I should be able to go where I want. You, you shouldn't be allowed to hide things from me. But secrecy is one, it was one of kind of the key parts of this project. It was, it was part of the, the flavor. Like we were out every day kind of sneaking around the forest a little bit and it was fun. And, but but it, it also, it served an important purpose, which was that um, while the trail was being built, it kind of ended in the middle of nowhere. And so if somebody had discovered it and ridden and had, had ridden up it, they would have just ended up in the middle of nowhere and they'd have to ride back down. But the trail wasn't built for riding back down. Um, it's uh, you, it, it, people that the corners are, are tighter and they're not banked. And, and so it'd be much harder to ride down without skidding and damaging the trail. And so while the trail didn't end anywhere, it kind of had to be secret to prevent that kind of damage from happening. And so I tried to kind of carefully explain that idea without offending somebody who might, who might believe that, that everything should be open to them all the time. During my career as a photographer, I have bought and used a lot of tripods. And early on, I made the mistake of going cheap, only to regret it later. Because in most cases, those tripods didn't hold up over time or they failed to provide the stability that I needed when it counted. That's why I've been really impressed with the durability and the stability MiPhoto provides at a very affordable price. I've been using a MiPhoto tripod for my travels for the past three years, and they have never disappointed. Their latest series of tripod and monopods, the MiPhoto Airs, build on that stellar reputation. They are 30% lighter than the classic MiPhoto models and provide super fast setup with its new hyperlock leg system, which allows you to set up and collapse the tripod quickly and single-handedly. It's available in several different models and in seven brilliant colors. 
Check them out and order one today. You can save 15% off your purchase by using the promo code THECANDIDFRAME when you visit mephoto.com. That's M-E-F-O-T-O.com. Um, tell me about the um, the choice of the twenty images because you were shooting, you know, for 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 nine months, and you know, God knows how many photographs you took during that period of time. <laughs> twenty one thousand. Uh, what is it? Twenty one thousand two hundred sixty two. Oh Jesus! So how do you get from that that high number to twenty <laughs> twenty selects? Because you know, people have a hard time, you know making selects from just a couple of hundred shots, much less several thousand. Yeah. So that was a, um, yeah, that was definitely a challenge. I kind of, I guess I did it in waves. Um, so for each day that I was out, I, um, I picked kind of my favorite pictures from that day and, and, uh, did the processing on those and then put them in a folder. Then once that was finished, I, I went through all of those that was, you know, still a large collection. I went through all of those and I picked out my favorites from that. And then I made small four by six prints of them. So I took that, that stack of prints and spread them out on my, on my, on the floor of my apartment and then brought out my list of themes or emotions. And then I tried to kind of match things up and how, how can I select a group of prints that kind of maximally covers this, this set of themes that I want to talk about while also being of good visual quality. I went through a lot of back and forth, kind of very slowly whittling down. I, f I found that for me, the process of really living with the pictures helped me out a lot, um, like leaving them on my floor and encountering them every day kind of really helped me sort through my feelings about them. Mm -hmm. Like they're, like if, if there might be two that represented a similar thing, and I didn't know which one to pick. I would just leave them in a, in a place where I would walk by them all the time and kind of slowly, subconsciously, I would figure it out. And I'd yeah, it's it's kind of it's a weird process that I've experienced again and again that I can't explain very well, but it definitely happens. And I, I've read about other people, other people having done this. I mean, that was where I got the idea from, and um, and it works great. So so yeah, I kind of used that to slowly whittle down, and then once I had some that I thought were potentially potentially going to be the set, I uh, enlisted various friends. I think about six friends. And I showed them the pictures and talked about the captions that I was thinking about writing for them and then listened to their reactions. And uh, I made a bunch of refinements um, from that. You know, it, it, feedback is important, but I think that what's often key is being careful about who you choose to provide you the feedback. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that part of it, the choices you made in terms of who you wanted to show the pictures to and, and solicit their, their comments about. Well, I think for the... The, the, the biggest thing was that it would be people who would who would dig in and really take the time to look at them and to give me thoughtful feedback. Um, and so I picked kind of close friends, close friends for that reason. And I tried to have a mix of people who are into photography, of people who are into um, outdoor stuff and people who didn't know anything about either of those things, um, because I, I felt like. Um, the potential group of people who would encounter this would be all of those. So then it, it was it was a process of sitting down with them and being really attentive and open to what they had to say to um, to try to elicit as much from them as I possibly could. Because if if I start shutting them down, if they've got something to say, you know, it's hard, it's hard to tell somebody that their work isn't very good. Um, and if they kind of begin down that path and I shut them down, then I miss out on gaining information. And so really trying to listen 
and um, and to encourage that was was pretty key, I think. And, and you know, you, the, this work has a presence online as well, and you have some other um, intents for it in terms of for for sharing them. Tell me about the difference between the way you chose to display it out along the trail and elsewhere. Yeah, I that, that was something that kind of ended up taking me by surprise with this was that it's ended up being two projects in one. So the first project being, yeah, the in-person gallery and the second project being like this internet fantasy that exists. So for the in-person gallery, I tried to make it as self-contained an experience as I could. So at any place that some random person might encounter it, like at all the different trail intersections, I put up informational posters that explained what the project was, some of the themes that I hoped that people would get from it. Um, and there was a map showing where you were and where the beginning of the project was and where the end was. And then so that way, if a person encountered it, then if they were really keen, then they could go back to the beginning and and and, and see the whole thing. Or they could just look at the one picture that was there and maybe get something from that. Or they could just ignore it altogether. But I wanted it to be a complete experience in itself. And and one thing that was about that, I guess, is it was seen by a smaller number of people, like maybe however many hundred people happened to go out to the trail. Um, but there is a lot more kind of bandwidth for information there with 20 pictures and 20 captions. You can kind of, <clears throat> you can get a lot of information across. Um, and so there is, you know, a fair number of themes around loneliness and whatever that I tried to, that I tried to get across there. But in the internet version, there's much less bandwidth. And so that, that kind of began with an article, with that article I mentioned that I wrote to try to set the tone in that version of the project, um, for the people who didn't encounter it in real life. It exists more as a fantasy, as like, what would it be like to see an art gallery in the forest? The pictures that the, that people that encounter it online see are um, they're all kind of smushed together on a web page, right? Like, there's a picture of this image, there's a picture of that image. They're all put together. Whereas in the in the in the in-person gallery, there you know there's quite a bit of space between each picture, so that so that experience is pretty mm-hmm. different. Um, but also, there's just much less bandwidth. Like, you know, when you click on a link, you kind of skim through an article and then move on to the next thing very quickly. So there's not a lot of room to um, to to expand on to convey a lot of information and to expand on themes. And so I had a much shorter message there um, of like of the fantasy of an art gallery in the forest of like, hey, trail builders are awesome. I hope you I hope you understand more about what they do. And and also, I tried to tack on a message about there being no conflict between mountain bikers and hikers, because that's something that's um, there's been a small number of isolated incidents around here that don't reflect the larger picture in any way. But they're the ones that that have kind of made their way into the public consciousness. And so I wanted to use this as an opportunity to kind of push back against that and say, like, hey, that that's not actually reality. That's not actually what happens that we're we all live together in harmony. You know, this this project ended up taking on a sort of a life of its own, and and so that you got interviewed uh, uh, on television uh, mm-hmm. as part of the result. So tell me about this becoming more than you sort of had in, anticipated, and and how did that come about? <laughs> it came about mostly by accident. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing was kind of an accident. Like I didn't plan any of this at the beginning. So as as an example. This only works if the trail goes uphill for bikes, because if it goes downhill for bikes, like you can't stop in the middle of your ride mm-hmm. to uh, to see the pictures, and it would be dangerous. It'd be bad for the trail to have people stopping in the same spot. But as but when the trouble is first told, told me that the trail was going to be uphill, I was disappointed. I was like, oh, I wanted to see a downhill trail. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely, all of this was 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 accidental. But I think that the way that it came about 
was was kind of twofold. One is that I sort of, through luck and whatever, hit on this idea that is pretty shareable. And in particular, like I don't think it's news that people on Facebook kind of try to represent their best selves. And certainly for for outdoor projects, part of part of one's best or for outdoor people, often part of one's best self is is um, supporting trail builders. And so by sharing this project, people can kind of reflect part of their best self. But more importantly than that, it's also um, it's also a bit surprising. And I can kind of prove that the surprising bit was really a big part of sharing because I wrote two articles, one at the beginning and one at the end, because I didn't want the project to come down silently either. Mm-hmm. And and for that second article, I tried I tried to make it better than the first. Like the pictures were better than the first because I had more time to take them. I tried to pack more information in about uh, the impact that these trails had on the mountain. And I had maps of where people ride before and after. I tried to reflect on some behind the scenes stuff. Like I, I think objectively that second article is better. But it was shared one-tenth as much because it's not surprising. So I, I knew that I kind of had this thing that, that could be shareable. And so I just contacted news outlets. <laughs> it was just, I just wrote emails. Mm. And in fact, for the, for the first TV appearance, uh, it was a producer at, at the TV station who happened to be a trail builder himself. And he saw my first article and wanted to have us on. So he, he actually called Penny because he had her number. He didn't contact me. It was kind of weird. Like, oh, how did he get a hold of her? It wasn't until later that we pieced this all together. And so from that, that, that first TV appearance really emboldened me, I guess. I was like, wow, I can be on TV. This is amazing. <laughs> and so <laughs> that, 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 that really emboldened me for contacting other TV stations, for radio, for newspaper, that kind of thing. And, uh, and yeah, it, uh, yeah it, it took off. That must have been really affirming, though, to, to to realize, oh, there are people who are going to be really interested in this, even if they never hit the, the trail. Mm-hmm. What perspective did that help bring to you to what you were doing? Well, see, I think the interesting thing is that it was only affirming for a while. Like mm. I, 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 I said earlier about how I kind of needed permission from myself to continue working on the project before it came out. And then... There was this brief period where at, at the beginning, everybody was super excited. And then I, I kind of finally felt like I had this external permission, this external validation or whatever. But then as the online stuff continued, again, my friends got bored of it. And I, and I was kind of right back to where I was again of like these things are happening and I'm excited about them. But when I talk to other people, they're a bit more like, oh, yeah, oh, oh another newspaper. All right. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, good for you. Mm-hmm. So how about that weather, you know? Yeah, so it was kind of only this brief period, I think, that was really affirming. Yeah, I don't know. It's I think the whole thing is just a struggle, a struggle with yourself, a struggle with your feelings. We talked about fear earlier. So what, what do you feel like you learned about yourself in terms of how you contend with fear when it comes to committing yourself to a, a project? It doesn't necessarily have to run this duration of time. It's just any project that you decide to sort of take on. How has your relationship with fear changed as a result of this? Well, I think that the thing that I was scared of was, of course, failure. And the thing about this project was that I did fail. I failed a ton. I, um, I realized that with this media stuff that I have this, like, this polished exterior of TV appearances and newspapers and whatever. But that just kind of covers over, I think, the amount that I actually did fail. So, so for example, um, we talked about I took 20,000 pictures and put up 20. So that that success rate of one in a thousand meant that for every thousand times that I pressed the shutter button, I failed 999 times. Um, even with 20,000 pictures to choose from, 
three of the result, I think we're not at whatever level of photographer that I try to be. You know, wherever wherever I am with my abilities pushing forward, mm-hmm. three of them three of them weren't there. And I missed photos that I that I wanted to take. Like I mentioned being at the pub. Well, I really wanted a picture of being at the pub because I thought that was an important part of it. It would add visual variety. But every time we were at the pub, I was too scared to strap a big flash to my camera and stand up and take a picture. I really wanted to get a picture of them building in the snow. But uh, on the day the, on the day that it snowed, I was too tired to go out. And so I, I told myself it would happen again, and it didn't. And there, there was another day where there was these beautiful rays of sun coming through the coming through the the the, the mist in the forest and I, and I know it was there because my facebook feed was full of it for the next two days <laughs> but <laughs> but uh again i didn't feel like going out that day i, I went and rode my bike instead and i i saw it and i missed out on getting pictures of it i i i also mentioned making a, a list of themes and uh there were several of the themes that i missed i missed having a, a picture of a feeling of leaving a legacy that they that they felt like they were doing I missed uh, having a picture of being in danger because there's um, there's often uh, dead trees that are along the trail and uh, standing along the trail and they might fall over and hurt somebody and so they needed to be taken down and in a controlled way and that was quite dangerous and I didn't get any pictures of that feeling and then most importantly most kind of dear to my heart was was hearing people nearby like we were kind of working in secret we could see other people riding by but they weren't aware of us and that was really fun and I don't have any pictures that represent that feeling. And, and lastly, I think that the maybe the biggest thing that I failed with was that the medium ended up being bigger than the message, where when people talk about this project, they say like, oh, hey, that was cool. You had these pictures along the trail or yeah, trail builders are awesome. But the other things, the other themes that I wanted to be represented in the in the uh, in the in the work didn't really they never seem to come up, like whether it's talking to somebody in person or reading comments online or whatever, they, they just don't come up. And that, that makes me feel like I didn't communicate very well. And, and so when I was first preparing to talk to you, I was, uh, I was talking through this with my girlfriend and, and I was going to come on here and say that I felt like this project was one failure after another that only succeeded in spite of itself. And um, she said that she was really surprised to hear this and that she didn't agree with it. And so I was like, okay, well, challenge accepted. You know, I'll show you who's a failure. And so I went and I and I wrote down this list. And I, I, it's going to sound kind of s- stupid and obvious, I guess, but just the fact of writing it down made me realize that I had exaggerated it in my head significantly. And in particular, like I talk about this list of themes, I had like 25 things on it. I haven't looked at that list in quite a while, and never ever since I was editing. But I pulled it out again for while I was preparing for this. And before I looked at it, in my head, I guessed that I probably missed about 50% of them. That, that was just kind of what I felt. I'm like, yeah, I think it's going to be about half. And I listed off three just now. There's maybe another one or two that are debatable um, out of 25. So that's like 15 or 20%, which is a ways away from half. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when I, look at the, when I haven't looked at the pictures for a while, I kind of start to feel like about, about half of them, again, are below whatever my ability is or where, where I'm trying to push myself forward. And it's not until I go and look at them again that, oh, no, it's, it really is just that three. The rest of them, they are kind of at the level of my ability. And they were, you know, challenging for me to make. So that, that difference, again, of 50% versus 15%. And so what I learned is that my perceptions of my failure are definitely different than reality. And so when I encounter polished work, when I encounter somebody else's polished work, and I see just their successes, 
it really makes me feel intimidated because I compare, I'm comparing their successes against the failures that I feel mm-hmm. about my own work. Yeah. And then further, like what I've learned from this is that my perceptions of my failures are, are exaggerated. And so I, so there, there's kind of these two, these two steps where, yeah, first it's versus the failures and then it's versus this exaggerated perception of the failures. And so I feel really intimidated when I look at other people's work. And so that's why I wanted to come on here and talk about my failures because I know that I, know that I have a polished exterior, but I want to talk about my failures so that I can maybe help to narrow the gap for somebody else. Oh, yeah. I completely relate to that. I mean, our, our perspective of our own accomplishments are, is severely distorted because we often fixate on the failures mm-hmm. and we're not privy to what other people's experiences is typically unless, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of volunteer that, that. So I think that's something I know I relate to. And I think probably a lot of people who are listening to this uh, uh, relate to as well. And I think, and I think that what I think that one of the great things about about you about you doing this is the fact you had an idea and you saw it through. And I think there's so many people that never even get that far. So regardless right. of what the sort of quality or the, the reaction to the content is, it's the idea that you went on the journey, that you right. made the photographs, that you learned from them. Because they never, you, no one is ever going to be satisfied completely with the work that they that they've done. But if they set out a challenge for themselves, not just, it ends up, especially for photographers, it's not just about whether or not the, you know, the, the photographs made it to the quality level that they had set out for themselves. It's whether or not they were able to surmount all the obstacles and all the moods and all the, uh, all that stuff that usually stops you from seeing it through. And the yeah. fact that you're able to see it through to the end and that you, and, and end up being manifested itself in, in this really beautiful way is, is a real compliment and a testament to your ability, your abilities as, as, as a photographer and as a, and as an artist and as a creator to be able to, to do it. So yeah, not everything turned out the way you might have liked it, liked it to, but you made it, you created it. And then you take the lessons from that and you move on to the, to the next project. Yeah. Thank you. What were the reactions to the trailbuilders to everything when it was done? I think a lot of amusement. There, well, I guess elation would be the first one because when that first TV producer called Penny, man, her and I were just on the phone and we were giddy. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was certainly the beginning. Um, I think that there's there was probably a bit of discomfort um, about about suddenly being high profile. Um, that they're also instructors, um, for, uh, for a mountain bike, like they're mountain bike coaches and they, and they teach sometimes around the United States and uh, even though we're all based in Canada and, and they've, they've been recognized like over on the East coast. And that's, that was like a pretty surprising and kind of weird and, and amusing experience for them. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. They, they're, they're really pleased that we've been able to raise the, um, raise awareness about trail building and. Yeah, I don't know. And now that you've completed it, what's what's next for you? <laughs> that question gets that that question digs into my deepest darkest fears because I am so worried that I am never going to have an idea this good again. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think I think that the I think that the answer to that for me is to redefine what success means. And instead of instead of success being about um, having a lot of people seeing the work, I think, 
I think I need to make a left, uh, make a left turn, have success mean something else. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, when I think about success right now in my life, I think about my girlfriend. I, uh, I think that she is the most successful thing that I have going. Um, I am just, I'm over the moon. I'm so in love with her. I love spending every minute with her. And so I, th- I think that's what success looks like. And so I think that finding a way of incorporating her into work is what success looks for, like for me later on. So specifically, um, she's a physician and she's, um, she's expressed some interest in volunteering in a place like Nepal to, uh, to teach at a hospital there for a little while. And I would love to accompany her on that and to take pictures of her work and the other work done by whatever organization she ends up being with and just of life there. And I am well aware that um, any pictures that I take will not be any better or different or more surprising than the hundreds or thousands of other people that have done this before. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing that with her, then that looks like success to me. That's awesome. Well, my last question is I ask each guest to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Yeah, I think it's it's a, a guy named John Goldsmith, and he's a street photographer here in Vancouver. What I really like about his work is that his style is very distinctive. You know, when you go out onto the street, if you've ever tried to take street photographs, um, there's just it's just chaos of people moving around and you don't have any control over it. And yet he is able to consistently go out and take pictures that are very recognizable. I mean, even the throwaway stuff on his Facebook is all is all in his style. And it's some kind of combination of mostly how he sees and a little bit of the processing. And I can't put my finger on it, even though I think I would be quite successful in picking his pictures out of a lineup um, a pretty high percentage of the time. And I just really admire that he's able to do that so consistently and so well. Thank you so much, man, for, for, for reaching out and, uh, and sitting down with talking and to talk with me this, this morning. I really appreciate it. Really enjoy the conversation. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it too. This has been a real pleasure for me. It's been a fantasy of mine for a long time to, to talk to you and, and to be on the show. And I'm, I'm really over the moon. Thanks to Ewan Forrester for joining us here at The Candid Frame. You can check out his work by visiting ewanforresterphotography.com. That's spelled E-U-A-N-F-O-R-R-E-S-T-R, photography.com. You can support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work we do here at TCF. And lastly, I'm working on joining photographer and fellow podcaster Martin Bailey for his Hokkaido Winter Landscape Photography Adventure at the beginning of January, and I hope to see some of you there. You can find out more about this wonderful experience by visiting martinbaileyphotography.com and clicking on the link in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.